Hey, welcome to our series, Problem of God, where we're answering big questions about faith. Is God real? Is Jesus the Son of God? Is the Bible really God's word? We hope you'll join us for each and every one of these discussions as we continue traveling through Acts. Before you log off, don't forget to fill out that connection card. You can do it at branchlife.church and stay through the end of the talk today where I've got some more important information for you. We hope that this series helps answer some of life's big questions. And thanks again for joining us for The Problem of God. talking about the problem of God through this series. On your chairs, you'll find these problem of God cards, and those are designed to help you uh, invite others to be a part of this conversation. We're talking about questions skeptics ask, and maybe you have some of these questions. Maybe you know someone who is asking some of these questions, or uh, you know someone that would like to ask these questions. Uh, those cards are designed to invite them into the conversation. Whether you're joining us online uh, at 9, 10, 30, or 6, 30, we are glad uh, that you've been a part of our journey through this series. We've been talking about the problem of God and answering big questions, and today may be one of the biggest questions. This question, this topic, has been called the rock of atheism. Because this is what a lot of people hold to, to say there is no God. And so the topic today that we're covering that comes up in Acts chapter 14 is the problem of suffering. And for ages and ages and ages and ages, people have discussed this problem. Why is there suffering? Why is there evil? Why do bad things happen? If God is so good, if God is so great, if evil and suffering are so bad and so wrong, why doesn't God just do something about it? God, therefore, good and powerful God and evil and suffering cannot coexist. One's got to give. And if suffering exists, that must mean there is no good, all-powerful God. And that's kind of how the logic goes, and it's the logic that's been coming from the beginning of philosophy and experience. This, this uh, idea of suffering is so powerful and so important that the very first book of the Bible ever inspired by God, the very first book of the Bible ever written, was not the book of Genesis. There's an older one. We have them in a different order because we did that. The first book of the Bible ever written, the oldest document that we have, is the book of Job. If you read the book of Job, it's all about a man who suffered for God. And in that story, Satan enters heaven and says to God, God, I would like to make Job suffer. Because if I can make him suffer, he will deny you. From the beginning of time, suffering has been used as a tool to separate people from God. But what we're going to learn today is that the exact opposite is what the Bible teaches. That's the exact antithesis of what God teaches us about suffering. And this is why suffering is such a problem. You know, the problem of suffering is super real. It's super legit. It happens to all of us, and, and there's some shared experiences around it. Why is it such a big deal? Well, number one, uh, suffering is personal. In other words, we feel it. We feel suffering. There's a, a pastor who went to, uh, the, to Nepal, uh, the mountains over near Everest. And as he was traveling through uh, the different villages, as he was experiencing the native life, he was struck by two incredible truths. One, there were children dying of preventable diseases. What we have aspirin for and medical checkups for and toothpaste for and, and Pepto-Bismol for, they don't have any of that stuff. And so a child can get sick with a very preventable disease and pass away and die young. 
The second thing he noticed was how much evil was present in these towns. There were, there were men who would travel into these villages that would be just a little bit outside of modern civilization. They would meet with the parents. They would convince the parents to give them their children for a certain amount of money. They would take those children down to the villages, and they would put them to work in the red light district. And as this pastor walked down some of these very streets, he would see what he thought were, were just children sitting on their front porch, but they were actually trained to proposition men to come to them. And he couldn't believe that this was happening in modern civilization. As the pastor walked and he saw the suffering, he saw the death, he saw the pain, he saw the evil, he saw people being abused and taken advantage of, he just had this feeling, right, that something is horribly wrong. This, is, this isn't right. This isn't, this isn't good and we all experience that feeling and it, when it's connected to suffering. And whether it's, whether it's something massive like a war or another shooting, and a mass shooting in Texas or, or cancer diagnosis or, or a kidnapping, whatever you want to use as an example, our universal experience to that, that what we all feel is something's awful. Something's off. And that feeling that something is horribly wrong is a good and true feeling. When it comes to suffering, something is awful, something is wrong. And it shouldn't be that way. Second reason suffering is so, such a big problem is it's universal. It's experienced everywhere by everyone and every time and every season of life. Suffering is universal. No one is immune from evil and suffering. And it's a universally shared reality. Whatever language, whatever village, uh, whatever age, whatever generation, however modern or technologically advanced we get, however backwards or, or isolated the culture is, everybody experiences suffering. So the question is, what boat will you be in when the water gets choppy? I remember going down to West Virginia on a trip with some teenagers and a youth pastor friend of mine. And we went to go down a river, right? And we were getting into the river. And when we got into the river, the place where we launched from, it was serene. The rivers of West Virginia, right? The mountains and the valleys, absolutely gorgeous. And here was this large river with this beautifully calm water. And they were launching us off into that. But as they were launching us off into these boats... They kept giving us instructions about how to be careful and how to, how to protect ourselves and what to do and not to do. And all of a sudden, they handed you like an extra life jacket and, and a, a buckle, right? And then, and then they said, here, you have to put this helmet on. And my youth pastor friend's like, well, I don't want to put a helmet on. I'm going to go in a nice little boat. Like, I don't need a helmet. He's going, you need a helmet, sir. And you're looking out there going, no, this is nice. This is calm. Nothing bad's going to happen. You all know what's happening, right? When you get down the river and around the corner, then the rapids come. And so, yeah, we put on our, our safety gear. We put on our helmets. We had the gloves on. We got in these boats that, that you could have handles to hold on to. And, and in the beginning, it's just nice. You're just rolling along like, life is good. Like, this is fantastic. It's great. And then you turn the corner. You, you hear it before you see it. And then you turn the corner and the rapids come. My, my, my youth pastor buddy hit those rapids so hard and so fast and so wrong that he got thrown out of the boat. Thankfully, he had his helmet on, right? <laughs> he just hit rock to rock to rock to rock like a pinball, you know, and eventually got pulled back into the boat. He's like, I'm glad I wore my helmet. It's super important that you have the right boat when you're traveling through choppy waters. Now, when it comes to suffering, so many of us expect our expectation is that life is going to be lollipops and rainbows, that it's going to be like that smooth section of the river. And that's kind of like what we're all expecting, what we're all working towards, and what we all want. We want smooth, beautiful, easy, comfortable. But the truth is that life is not smooth, easy, and comfortable. Life is suffering. It's universal. There's wrong out there. There's bad things that happen. And we're not guaranteed a comfortable life. We're not guaranteed a, 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 a happy, carefree life. We're not guaranteed any of those things. What the Bible guarantees, and it starts with a promise from the very first, the oldest book written in the book of Job, that you are guaranteed to have suffering. So why do so many of us ride around in boats, mental boats, spiritual boats, that are ill-equipped for choppy water? And when choppy water comes, we fall apart because we didn't have the right gear. 
We didn't put on the vest. We didn't put on the helmet. We weren't in the right boat. We were planning for, for comfort when we should have been planning for stress and distress. And so every group, every person, every age has tried to answer the problem of suffering because it's such a universal problem and because it's such guaranteed and because we all feel it so deeply. And many people will just automatically reject the idea of God because of suffering. And and what I want to say to that is just wait for a second before you totally reject God. What are the other options for explaining suffering? So if, if you would go to the marketplace of ideas and you would say, how do we explain suffering, right? So someone can say, I don't believe in God because suffering exists. Then you have to say to them, well, what do you believe in? What is the thing that you're trusting in? What, how do you explain suffering? And that's just a good question. Not an attacking question. Legit, I want to know what your marketplace option is that you're relying on. What boat are you sitting in as you travel through this thing called life? And here's, here's some of the predominant options that you have in the marketplace of, of ideas today. You have atheism, the idea of atheism that says because evil and suffering are real, God cannot be real. That's the Epicurious or Epicurean thought that's been around uh, since ancient times where, where that logic plays out, right? Good, good, great God would eliminate suffering so they can't both exist. If, that, if that's your option, then what you're landing on is life is meaningless. There's nothing we can do about it. We're going to suffer. It's going to be painful, and it comes out to nothing in the end. So make the best of it. Live life while you can, and just care for yourself the best way possible. I heard an atheist just today talking about how to deal with the problem of suffering, and he said, listen, life has no meaning. You have to create your own. We suffer, and so the ultimate good is life is helping relieve other people's suffering. The best way to do that is tell good stories so we can distract people. Well, that, that's where atheism takes you. Now, the, the second, this, another modern thought, and this is, this is more recent, Norman Vincent Peale would be a, an example of kind of a new age mindset. Suffering is merely an illusion of the mind, and it can be overcome through positive thinking and meditation. So in new age thinking, you start to say, all right, this, this what I'm experiencing isn't real. I've got to refocus myself. I've got to just meditate and find my inner peace, my inner strength, right? And there's, there's a lot of branches of all of these thoughts, but just kind of summing it up. But the problem with that is just go to a village in Nepal and see kids being trafficked, right? And say, no, this is very, very, very real. I can't just ignore this and say this isn't happening. The second, another major fluid of thought in the marketplace is the Eastern mindset, whether it's Hinduism, Buddhism, or an offshoot of one of those, they'll say things along the lines of suffering is called caused by evil done in past life. In other words, it's karma. And in reincarnation, you did something wrong in a past life, so therefore you're suffering in this life, and you must suffer so you can do better, so you can have a nicer next life. So don't intervene when someone is suffering. And so if an old lady has a baby who's dying and she knocks on your window and says, please help me feed my baby, you have to say to them in this strain of thought, no, it's karma. You must suffer in this age because something went wrong in the last age and it's not my job to intervene and interrupt karma. Again, another, another self-serving way. Or you're suffering because of your attachment to worldly things and you've got to separate yourself from, from worldly things would be more of a Buddhist strain of that thought. You start looking at the options there, and you, it's, it's the problem of suffering is equally a problem in all of these schools of thoughts. And there's, there's equal holes, and there's equal stress, and there's equal distress. There's not, a, there's not an answer in, in these schools of thoughts where you can say, That's, I've got confidence, I've got meaning, I've got purpose, I understand why this is happening. Then the biblical school of thought, thought comes around, and, and su- we sum it up this way, suffering is brokenness in our world caused by our rebellion against God, who, instead of eliminating free will, sent Jesus to suffer for us so that we could freely choose repentance and salvation. In other words, evil and suffering are here because we have free will and we chose it. The the original sin, Adam and Eve kind of breaking the law of God, participating and eating the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil by one man, sin entered the world, and the world broke. God was not designing the world this way. He designed an absence of evil and suffering, yet we chose to allow to participate in evil and suffering. Therefore, brokenness has entered the world. Yes, God could have snapped his fingers right then and said, no, I'm going to take away your free will, and you're going to do it my way or the highway. But God in his sovereignty 
allowed us to have free will. And so to help with the problem of evil and suffering, God joined us. And he became one of us. And he participates in our suffering. There is no other school of thought. There is no other religion. There is no other way of thinking out there where God, the hero of the story, the powerful one, enters into the suffering. Just think about in ancient times. No wonder they didn't want to believe in gods because in ancient times, Zeus and, and Hermes and Ares and all these, right, all these Thor and all these modern gods out there, it's like they were playing with mankind and they were aloof to our suffering and they lived above it and sometimes used it for their own schemes and benefit. Who wants to participate in that school of thought? But not God, not God of the Bible. He sent his only son to suffer. Why? So that we could choose salvation and redemption. So we could choose freedom from sin. And so he begins addressing the problem of evil one heart at a time. One heart at a time. And then someday, as, as, as the story unfolds, there will be no more pain, there will be no more suffering, there will be no more crying, there will be no more death, and this momentary distress will be but that of vapor. And the design that God has carried out, we will have chosen to be a part of, still allowing us to have free will and salvation. In, in this school of thought, in the biblical way of thinking, we sum it up this way. Suffering then does not prove to us that there is no God, suffering demonstrates how much we need God. And from every page of the Bible, you will hear call out to God in time of suffering. In Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 2, oh Lord, how long shall we cry for help? Or, how, or, or will you not hear? Or will we cry violence and you will not save? How long, God? How long until you come and do this thing that we are longing for and hoping for? Job, in his distress, all of his kids has died. He lost all of, his, all, of his, all of his material. He questioned God and said, what was going on? How is this going to end? What are you going to do about it? In Psalm 6, verse 3, it says, my soul is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? God, in, in his love for us, sent his own son. God's own son was mocked, abused, tortured, and killed. God understands absolutely the suffering that we face on a personal and intimate level. He walks with us through it. And God himself has allowed time, has allowed seasons and ages of suffering to happen even to his own son. How long, O oh Lord, until you save? How long, O oh Lord, until the abuse has ended? How long, O oh Lord, until there's no more death? And in the person of Jesus, we realize that in this act of loving kindness, Jesus saves us from suffering. Jesus teaches us about suffering, and Jesus leads us through suffering. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus, your home, your eternal destination changes, your soul goes a different direction, right? And you will forever be with God in glory, saves you from eternal suffering. When you have a relationship with Jesus, you then have an example of someone who has suffered in every way, yet was sinless through it all. Was able to get through suffering without anxiety, was able to get through suffering without doubt, was able to get through suffering without losing their joy and their hope. Jesus teaches us how to get through suffering, and then not only that, he walks with us through it in every day. It was just May the 4th, right? How many of you said to someone, may the 4th be with you, right? You had that, you had that this week? You, you're a nerd, right? Like, that's, that's how that happened. I was, I was, again, with a friend of mine. He walked up to the, the barista, and you guys know each other? Like, there's a signal that you got, like, I'm not a nerd, right? But, like, I'll pretend I'm not. And you guys know, and people see each other, and then he ordered coffee at Starbucks, and the barista said to my friend, may the 4th be with you, like she knew he would get it, and he totally got it. Like, he was like, yeah, man, fun be with you, too, huh? right? And they had this, like, moment. I'm like, that was a nerd moment. May the 4th be with you. Like, I don't know how you find each other, but you do, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so that, that happens, right? And, and uh, now, I saw a pastor spiritualize this, and he said, 
may the fourth be with you. And then he put a, a picture up of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. And the fourth was Jesus. He came in that place. May the fourth be with you. May the person of Jesus walk with you through whatever you are facing and whatever season you find yourself in. You see, the problem of suffering is, is that we all feel it. Everyone. And it's universal. You feel it. I feel it. God feels it. Jesus feels it. Paul felt it. And in the story of Acts chapter 14, we get to this progression in the timeline of events. They've been tasked to start this thing called the church. It's not a smooth river that they're rowing down. It's starting to become very bumpy. And so as they're introducing people to Jesus, as they're talking about how God is here to save the world, of course the problem of suffering comes up and comes up in a major way. And through all of Paul's writing, whether you see what he says in Acts or you see what he writes in Romans and 1 Corinthians and Ephesians, and we're going to look at some of those today, the basic tenets of what Paul will teach us are these five truths. And, and these are five universal truths that come to us from Scripture. Truth number one, God exists, right? We talked about that the very first Sunday, the problem of God. How do you know he exists? Then he says, then he teaches us three things about God. Number one, God is good. Number two, God is all-powerful. Number three, God is all-knowing. And number four, evil and suffering exist. These truths are an exact opposition to the marketplace of ideas that say evil and suffering and God can't exist at the same time. Yet Paul holds to these truths that it is possible, it is logical, it is reasonable that you can believe in a good, all-powerful God and still have evil and suffering. Now here's what most people leave out of their equation when they fight against God. If God exists and he's good and he's all-powerful, then suffering would be gone. They don't remind us that God is the all-knowing one. What's the problem with that conclusion? That conclusion assumes that I, therefore, know better than God. That I am the all-knowing one. That I am the one that can see from beginning to end. That I am the one that knows the whole story and the author of the story. That I am the one that understands the intricacies of the universe and the, the dynamics of good and evil and what forever and time have in common. And I'm the one that's able to figure all that out. And because I'm the one that's able to figure all that out, I'm the one that needs to come to the conclusion that suffering would be eliminated if I was God. Therefore, there must be no God. No, no, no. We also learn this fact that God is the all-knowing one, not me. And what if there is no clear way for us in our limited perspective to understand this great question of suffering? When Job confronted God and he said to him, God, I live for you. God, I, I would die for you. Yet, you've taken my livelihood, you've taken my, my children, You've taken my health, and I want to know why. Do you know what God said to him? He didn't say, well, let me explain it to you, Job. I'm going to hand you a theology of suffering that you're going to grasp, and then you're going to turn around. You're going to appreciate everything that you've gone through and what's happening in the long, long, long history of the world and how this is a part of the greater good that's going to come from even the evil and the suffering that we see in this place. And, and Job, once I explain it, you're going to be okay. That's not what God said to Job. You know what God said to Job? He said, who do you think you are? Where were you when I created snow? Where were you? When I created the mountaintops and the depths of the ocean. Where were you when I created the expanses of the universe and invented this thing called time? Where were you, Job? And in that moment, you feel really, really small with Job. You're like, sorry, I shouldn't have asked, right? Like, sorry, God. And God's just reminding him, not in a mean, mean, horrible, like, let me humble you for a second way, but let me humble you for a second way. You're not the all-knowing one. Only God is. And so therefore, when you have these truths, and particularly the truth that God is all-knowing, you realize that, yes, there might be something that I don't know, that I can't comprehend, that would allow for all of these to be true at the same time. And we see this played out in the book of Acts. When Paul reminds us that Christians, as Christians, we must be prepared for suffering. We must be prepared for suffering. 
And if you have your Bibles, let's go to Acts chapter 14, verse 22. But he says in this passage, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. How do we, how do we enter the kingdom of God? We're not going to enter it without going through tribulations. So therefore, we must, Christian, be prepared to suffer. If you have your, if you have your journals on page 84, or if you're in your Bibles, page uh, chapter 14, verse 19, let me start reading for you. After... Um, After the miracles that Paul had done that we talked about last week, we then get into verse 19 of of chapter 14. He says, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. Now, if you're not familiar with stoning, stoning is not they came and they threw a bunch of pebbles at him to get him out of town. Stoning is they gathered They gathered him into a spot, typically a pit. They threw him in the pit or the bottom of a hill. Then people gathered rocks as big as they could hold or as big as they could throw. And as a group, they threw the rocks at the person at the bottom of the hill or the bottom of the pit. This was all designed to kill. The whole point of a stoning was to kill the person that was being punished in that way. Paul, when we first meet him, his name is Saul, and Saul is standing at the top of one of these hills holding the coats of the men who are lifting and throwing the heavy rocks that will kill Stephen. When we first meet Saul, Paul, he is participating in the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr. The first time we asked ourselves in the study, what's up with suffering? Now Paul finds himself at the other end of that equation, and they've gone from yelling at him, they've gone from jailing him, they've gone from saying bad things about him, to now they're going to stone him, and they do. And so they throw these massive stones at Paul, and the result of the stoning was at the end of 19, they supposed he was dead. We got him. He's gone. Paul's toast. In other words, Paul is now physically suffering in a bad way. Verse 20, but when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up. Some people claim a miracle here. I don't know. I just think maybe he was unconscious for a while. He rose up and he entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to the city, right? You're like, wait a minute, didn't you just get stoned yesterday? And when they had preached the gospel to the city, Uh, and had made the disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, the place that they were stoned, the people that they had left behind, and listen to what they said. They strengthened the souls of the disciples. They encouraged them to continue in the faith and said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed." Paul drops onto his friends, the church, his theology of suffering, and he gave them a roadmap to dealing with suffering. And the first thing that he points out is everyone's going to suffer. We're going to go through tribulation. Probably Christian and church, you're going to suffer even in a greater way because you have the addition of a spiritual warfare. Satan's coming after you, and you have persecution from people who don't believe in God. Plus, you have the brokenness of this world. So Christian, get ready to suffer. You need to be prepared. And they came from Antioch, and they stoned him, and they dragged him, and they supposed he was dead. And he gave them these three steps. First, he said, it's important that we strengthen the souls of the disciples. Second, we want to encourage them to continue in the faith. And third, he appointed elders for them in every church. So what should be our response to suffering? How should we as Christians be prepared? What do we need to put in, what boat do we need to get in for this thing called life? And when we start dealing with suffering, what should our reaction be? Well, I see three clearly in this passage. Our response to the reality of suffering should be this. Number one, we need to make sure that we participate in stronger soul care. As Christians, our response to suffering should be to care for our souls so that our souls get stronger. Physical, so, physical care, super important. I got to make sure I'm physically fit. Emotional care, mental well-being, super important. I got to make sure that I'm, I'm connecting in times of distress and stress, that I'm, that I'm dealing with trauma, that I'm, I'm helping myself through relational issues, super important. We, 
We do that. And most people in the world agree, I've got to take care of my mental well-being. I've got to take care of my physical well-being. Let me tell you something that's equally important, if not more so. Paul did not say in this passage that he came back to encourage the disciples physically or even mentally. What he said and what he dedicated himself to after this traumatic event was the care of their souls. He worked to strengthen the souls of the disciples. He said, the number one thing I want you to do after this season of pain, after this season of trauma, during this season of pain, during this season of trauma, is I want you to strengthen your soul. And so it brings us to this massive question, well, how do we do that? And I want to I say to you, you have two options when suffering enters your life. Number one, you can run away from Christ, or number two, you can run towards him. Those are your options. And when you run towards Christ, Christ says, I will strengthen your soul. When you say to God, here's my soul, I need it to be strengthened. And when we run towards Christ, well, what are we going to participate? You're going to participate in soul-strengthening activities like singing songs of praise and worship, like praying together or alone with God, like reading the word of God, like gathering in worship. I remember uh, a month or so ago, one of our worship collective members was going through a particularly difficult weekend. And they were having a particularly difficult weekend, and, and they were scheduled to play both services on Sunday morning and come back on Sunday night and play. And I remember saying, you, don't, you feel free. You don't need to do that. We, we can figure it out. You know, and, and I remember, I'll never forget it, and it's encouraging me even this weekend, that he said, what a better place for me to be when everything's going wrong is to be gathered with the believers and singing songs of praise to my God. What are my options? Do I want to stay home and fall apart? Do I want to get, get surf the internet? Should I, me? I just go to bed and put a pillow over my head. Like, that would be me. That'd be what I would do. He goes, no. I want to work on strengthening my soul. Even in the midst of this pain, I want to run towards God in these moments. And so listen to some of these soul-strengthening verses. Matthew 11, Matthew 16, and Mark chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, it says this, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I, God, am gentle and lonely at heart, and, and you will find rest for your souls. Right? For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In other words, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I, God, will give you rest. When I run to God, when I carry his cross, when I carry his burdens, when I carry what he asked me to carry, we find that our gentle and lowly God has made a way for us to sustain life even in this difficult age. He carries the burden for us, and what he asks us to carry is actually pretty light. Come to me, and you will find rest for your soul. In Matthew chapter 16, after the instructions to take up your cross and follow Jesus, he says this, if you will save your life, if, if you would like to save your life for my sake, you will lose it. And when you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Mark chapter 12 says, you shall then love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. And you ready for this? With all your soul with all your soul. You need to, in the midst of suffering, participate intentionally in soul-strengthening activity. Run to the word of God. Run to the prayer of God. Run to the place where God is. Run to the people of God and feed your soul. Some of the most difficult moments of worship in my life have been connected to suffering. I, I, today's a hard day for me to speak on suffering. Because most of you know my brother-in-law right now is in brain surgery to get a tumor taken out. Last night I was joking with him. I said, they're going to take off part of your skull. He said, yeah. And I said, they're going to get the tumor. They're going to take it out. Yeah. And I said, then they're just going to paste your skull back together? And he's like, yeah, I don't know. I didn't ask that many questions. I was like, so that's a thing? And, and yeah, he said, absolutely, that's a thing. So when's, when's this happening? Well, I'm going to go into surgery at 8, 8 this morning. At 8.25, they they took him into surgery just a couple minutes ago. And so right now, they're going, they're going through that very procedure. 
And then I come in this morning, and the worship team is singing about God. And singing about life and death. And singing about hope. And I'm just like, I don't think I can stay. <laughs> like, this is tough. Because, man, it's, it's, it, it feel, I feel it. It shouldn't be this way. Something's absolutely wrong. It's universal. We're all participating in it. But, but what does God ask me to do in these moments? He says, listen, take care of your soul. Pray together with your wife. Turn on that music that, that fills your house. So Jenny this morning has got extra songs on. She throws a song. I'm like, don't play that song. I was just doing just fine. She's like, we're playing the song, right? So we're playing the song. And we're, we're trusting in God that no matter what, right, that, that our souls will be strengthened in him. And then what, what he encourages us to do is he encourages us to have a deeper faith. And in 2 Timothy, if you have your Bibles, and you'll need your Bibles, it's not in your journals. In 2 Timothy, you see one of the, the great examples of, of suffering through this passage. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul wrote this verse to his protege, Timothy. And Paul and Timothy uh, met each other right here in Acts chapter 14. Remember in Acts chapter 14, it says that Paul was in Antioch and he was in Iconium. And these people came and they stoned him and he had to go to Derby. Guess who he met in Derby? Timothy. Timothy is where, is where Paul and, and or Derby is where Paul and Timothy first met and where they began a partnership that would last through the entire New Testament. And then Timothy would become one of the people who would build the church. And Paul may have never met Timothy if he didn't go through this moment of suffering. When we suffer, we never know what God is doing in our journey, where he's taking us, where he's redirecting us. And sometimes we're so stubborn that we wouldn't move from our spot. And so God has to nudge us with a little bit of suffering. And we suffer and we start changing direction and we start seeing how God is actually enabling us to do more than we ever thought we could do, go places we never thought we would go, introduce Jesus to people we never thought we'd be allowed to introduce Jesus to. Why? Because we had some time of suffering. And in, Acts, in Timothy chapter 3, Paul is talking to Timothy, who's well aware of everything that Paul's gone through, not just stoning, but shipwrecks and sickness and jail and diseases and all kinds of stuff. In chapter 12, he says to Timothy, indeed, all who desire, chapter 3, verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from who you learned it and from how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. And what does he point Timothy to? Verse 16. All scripture is God breathed and is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. When you go through suffering, your response for suffering should be to run to the words of God and to deepen your faith. Find the, the, the meaning that God has for you. Some people say, I want to hear God speak in the midst of suffering. I want him to say something to me. I want to have a word from God. I'm going to say to you, binge the book. Run to it. Read it. Put, don't, don't put it down until you've got that word from God, until he has spoken to you a word of encouragement, power, truth, that he can, now you can take so that you can deepen your faith. Run to God. Run to worship. One of the coolest things about what we're dealing with this weekend is they assigned my brother's emergency brain surgery for Sunday morning. There are a dozen churches praying for my brother-in-law right now. So many people are wrapping their arms around him. Why? Because the family of God is gathering all over this country and God has said, bring your burdens to me. Share your burdens with one another. Then I, I'll take care of it. My yoke is easy because I'm gentle and, and, and lowly at heart. Deepen your faith. Run to God. And then, and this is the example that Paul gives us. Then he says, get back to work. 
Get back to work. There's, there's something that you need to do. There's a mission that God has for you. And, and if we allow suffering to stop us, if we allow suffering to freeze us, if we allow suffering to, to take us away from the mission and the path that God has for us, then we are being taken off the field instead of being on the field, right? And what, God, what Satan would love to see is people on fire for God, on the field doing work for God, be taken off the field and out of the game because of suffering. And Paul says, no, 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 you get back on that field as quickly as you possibly can under the banner of soul care and deepen your faith and get to work. Do the thing that God has for you to do. And so in 2 Timothy 3, chapter 17, right after he says scripture is all God breathed, he says that, why? why? Why scripture? Why deepen your faith? Why care for your soul? So that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. When we go through suffering, it simply means that God has a greater work for you. He has something greater for you to do. He's got ways for you to minister that you could have never ministered before. Ways that you can work that you have never worked before. I, my mother-in-law was at our house last week and we were talking about Christy and we are talking about Nick and everything that they're going through. My mother-in-law, my father-in-law passed away suddenly 11 years ago and, and died suddenly of a heart attack. My mother-in-law is now a widow. And she understands exactly kind of the, this, this trauma of suffering and this trauma of pain. She is already able to come alongside her own daughter in this disaster and bring to her wisdom and insight and care and empathy in a whole nother level of a way because of what she's already been through. And when my father-in-law passed away, there were people that came into her presence that had experienced suffering like she had suffering. And those are the ones that provided the most comfort. When you, when you suffer, that means that God is opening a way for you to do a work that you never thought possible. He wants to do that work both in you and through you. And so get to work. Get to doing what it is God would have for you to do. Pastor Alex would be very, very proud of me in this moment because I remind you of his favorite verse, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. You are God's workmanship created in Jesus for good work that God has prepared you beforehand so that we should walk in the truth. Franklin Roosevelt, who had been bound to a wheelchair since childhood because of the disease of polio, said this, a smooth sea never made a skilled sailor. A smooth sea never made a skilled sailor. And you, Christian, you're going to experience the difficulties of this world, and it's going to make you a stronger Christian. It's going to make you realize how much more you need God. It's going to make you realize how, how you can experience God in a deeper level, how you can sing those songs in a richer way, how you can pray in ways that you never thought you could pray before, and your ability to connect with Christ and to love with Jesus and to love on others through Jesus will be greater because you traveled through rough seas. So what do you do when life is choppy? What boat are you in? Are you preparing yourself in the marketplace of ideas biblically to face suffering? I would encourage you today to accept Jesus as your savior. There's no, there's no greater hope, there's no greater joy in the season of suffering than knowing that Jesus is my Savior and that my soul is cared for once and for all. Have you accepted Jesus as your Savior? If you have not yet accepted Jesus as your Savior, I want to invite you today as the day of your salvation to put your faith and trust in Him. Simply pray and talk to God in these moments and tell God that you're ready to receive Him. Sorry for your sin, your brokenness. You believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again for you, suffered on your behalf, and that today you want to accept the free gift of salvation. Some of us stopped there. And I want to remind you today, and I want to encourage you and ask you, have you accepted Jesus, not just as your Savior, but have you accepted Jesus as your teacher? Are you learning from him? Are you learning by watching him, by knowing him, by experiencing him, and by following him? And are you allowing Jesus to teach you about life, about suffering, about faith, about mission, about purpose, about hope, about joy, about love, about kindness? Jesus will teach you all of these things if you accept Jesus, not just as your savior, but as your teacher. 
And maybe today you need to be reminded and asked, have you accepted Jesus as your leader? Are you following him on the field? Are you behind him as he's quarterbacking the plays and you're running those plays for the glory of God and for the building of the kingdom? Or have you gotten so busy doing your own work that you've forgotten the greatest work of all, the work of building the kingdom? And when you accept Jesus as your savior and as your teacher and as your leader, there is nothing that's impossible for you. There is no mountain that God cannot move. There is no pain that God cannot heal. He is in the business of of healing broken things. If you have any questions about your own personal faith in Jesus after the service, prayer team members will be available. Or you can even go now online if you're worshiping online with us to our gospel page and talk to talk do some business with God today and if you're experiencing a season of suffering I want to encourage you to engage with the prayer team after the service and they'll pray with you over anything that you might need prayer over this morning I know I will ask prayer for my brother Nick when we experience suffering we say with the author of the book something's got to change the world is broken suffering is real and Jesus is changing the world one heart at a time And it starts with you and me. Dear God, Heavenly Father, as we look to you today, we recognize that there is suffering and pain in this world. And we ask, God, that you would continue your great work of healing this broken world. We in these moments plead with you, Lord, come quickly. Come quickly. Bring your kingdom here. God, would you eliminate the pain? And we can't wait for the day. There's no more death and there's no more crying. And God, Until that moment comes, will you be our savior? Will you be our teacher? Will you be our leader? And God, would you strengthen our souls, deepen our faith, and God, help us to do what it is you have for us to do, even in the seasons that hurt. We thank you, God, that you are good, that you are powerful, and that you are all-knowing, and that we can trust in you when faced with evil and suffering in this world. In these moments, Lord, we worship you. Will you join us in singing?
Hey, thanks again for listening through this talk in our Problem of God series. And we hope that the discussion today helped answer some questions that you might have about faith and that you've taken a step further in your spiritual journey. Before you go, make sure to fill out your connection card at branchlife.church. We'd love to know that you joined us through this video session today. If you have any questions about what we covered, that's the place to ask those questions. We hope that you'll join us again next time, and thanks again for being a part of this series.